Money FM 89.3, best of workday afternoon. Here on Money FM 89.3, I'm Clarissa Montero for the workday afternoon. Coming up next on Health Suites, we talk to Dr. Lin Su Ling, consultant neuro oncologist and program director for Brain Tumor Program, National Neuroscience Institute at Sing Health, to ask the question when is it time to put down the paracetamol and call a doctor because your headache is not getting better? Coming up next on Money FM 89.3. Health Suites with Clarissa Montero on Money FM 89.3. Good afternoon and welcome to Money FM 89.3. This is Health Suites. I'm Clarissa Montero. Joining me on the phone today, Dr. Lin Siu Lin, Ling, consultant, neuro oncologist, and program director for Brain Tumor Program at the National Neuroscience Institute. Doctor, welcome to the show. Hi, Clarissa Montero. Thanks for having me. It's absolutely our pleasure. Now, all of us have suffered headaches, migraines, all of the, you know, the in-betweens of that. And normally what we do is we reach for the paracetamol, the ibuprofen <laughs> and whatever other over-the-counter painkillers that is our favorite to deal with it, right? When is it time to stop self-medicating and make that appointment with a doctor? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think headaches are actually really common. In Singapore, we have a lifetime prevalence of headaches reported up to 82.7%. And the majority of headaches, as you point out, do not actually require a visit to the doctor. But there are certain situations that we would recommend patients to come to see us, specifically when headaches are persistent, despite avoidance of headache triggers. And when we use the word persistent, we typically think about it as affecting somebody for more than once a week for at least a couple of weeks. In those situations, patients may not be sufficiently treated with short-term sort of over-the-counter pain medications, and they may require what we call headache prophylaxis, where the medications would help to reduce the frequency of headaches. In such cases, we would actually recommend the, doc- the patient to see a doctor and to get it evaluated and decide if there's a need for a headache prophylaxis. Mm-hmm. In other situations, um, when the headaches are accompanied by other symptoms, that may actually tell us that there is an underlying condition that is causing the headaches, such as fever, confusion, significant lethargy, or there are what we call neurological symptoms like weakness, numbness, problems walking. Um, in those situations, definitely your doctor. Then there are also other situations depending on the patient's sort of epidemiology, the age group when you have a new headache that you never had before in your life and you're slightly older age group, above 50 years old, that would warrant you to see a doctor as well. And for someone who's pregnant with a new onset headache, that would be important to see a doctor as well. Uh, There are a variety of symptoms that when accompanied with headaches, would actually be important to start uh, thinking about booking an appointment with a physician. Okay, and at that point, your regular family doctor, your regular GP is is good enough at that point, right? Because it could just be the onset of high blood pressure, for example. It's not necessarily straight away a life-threatening thing. There are so many other medical situations you could be suffering from that isn't so sinister, shall we say? 
Yeah, so I would agree that a majority of the situation that it will be helpful to see a primary physician, a general practitioner, or um, to see someone in the polyclinic and get that first evaluated in situations where the doctor would find certain warning symptoms or signs that on a physical examination, they would actually put a referral to us and to get the patient to see us in the specialist clinic. However, I think there are certain symptoms, such as a very sudden onset of severe headache that we call it maximum epigene within a couple of seconds of the onset of the headache and wakes the patient up from sleep. Those headaches may be a lot more sinister where it may warrant a direct visit to the emergency department. So in very broad terms, majority of headaches are usually not that sinister and going to see a general practitioner, primary physician would be sufficient. Okay. So you're saying Mm -hmm. if you don't generally have these mind-numbing headaches that bring tears to your eyes and suddenly you do at 3 o'clock in the morning, don't go to your GP. It's time to go straight to a neurologist. If it's a a headache that it's so bad right at the onset, sometimes that may tell us that it's a spontaneous bleed in the brain and that actually warrants a visit directly to the department. But those situations, it's really rare in a very broad setting and majority, as pointed out, I think it's, it's actually... The first step would be to see a primary physician. All right. We're speaking to mm-hmm. Dr. Lin Su Ling, consultant, neuro-oncologist and program director for Brain Tumor Program at the National Neuroscience Institute. Now, one of the things that a lot of us as patients don't do is we do not prepare ourselves to see a doctor. Mm-hmm. So in this specific instance where we've got recurring headaches, the paracetamol doesn't seem to be doing very much for us, and we think it's time to talk to a doctor What information should we have ready to share with the doctor? What is important? What do we need to tell the doctors absolutely? Yeah, so I think if we think of it from our perspective, we are interested to diagnose the condition and understand how we can manage our patients' headaches to improve their quality of life. And so in order for us to diagnose the condition, we would want to know the full details of the headaches, Um, when the headaches first started, how often they are, whether there was a previous history of headaches and how the current headaches are similar or different from the previous headaches. And point out earlier, some symptoms that are associated with headaches are important to highlight. So if you have a new onset of fever with the headaches, you have weakness or numbness, those are very important symptoms to highlight. Other symptoms that may suggest something a little more benign, like migraine symptoms, nausea, vomiting, sensitivity to light and sound, So I think in very broad terms, any symptoms that are new that comes together with the headaches, it will be important to report to your doctor. And I think one other aspect that sometimes are not considered fully, it's something that will be helpful for us to manage the headaches, which is for us to understand the triggers. So it will be helpful if the patients think a little more about what triggers their headaches. Is it a lack of sleep? Is it stress? Um, were there some things that they do on a regular basis that can trigger the headaches? That will be something helpful to think back and report it to your doctor as well. And for certain situations, it may be helpful to keep a headache diary as well to understand your full pattern of your headaches as well as identifying triggers that you previously may not already know. All right. Now, 
you mentioned the the family physician, the primary physician could, if they see the the symptoms, refer you to a neurologist. Now, I can honestly tell you, as the average person on the street, if I was referred to a neurologist, I would a panic and think the worst. <laughs> because no, I'm serious because. You know, it's like you're talking about the brain and we've all seen the movies and the hospital dramas where there's MRIs and all these these images of what's going on in the brain. And and so, of course, all of us are going to be very concerned. Now, mm-hmm. that, that's from a layman's point of view. So as a neurologist, maybe you should tell us what do we expect as, as the patient on our first visit? Yeah, so I think for... A patient who comes to see us for headaches, like any other doctor, we would go through your medical and your drug history. And as neurologists and we're seeing patients with headaches, we would be actually really obsessed about your headache details. So some of the things I've mentioned when it first started, how often they are associated symptoms. Mm -hmm. I think what you would expect us or what you would expect a neurologist to do is actually a full neurological examination as well, following the history that would involve checking your face, your arm, and your leg function. And then following that, we would discuss with the patient our impression of the diagnosis and any additional investigations that are necessary. I think, as I pointed, majority of headaches are actually considered not so sinister in the sense that they are typically migraines or tension headaches. In such situations where the headaches are classical, for migraines or tension headaches, not, we may not actually need a brain scan. And that's where we would spend most of the time discussing about the headache management, the strategies that are personalized to the patient, including how we can avoid triggers or how we can manage the triggers and the medications that are necessary. Okay, so, on that first visit, how likely is it I'm going to end up having to do an MRI or a brain scan and, and things like that? Mm-hmm. So... I would say that in even in a clinic visit, I would say that majority of the patients, more than 90, 95% of the patients actually have a prim, what we call a permi-headache syndrome, which covers tension headaches and migraines. In those situations, actually patients do not actually require a brain imaging. There are certain situations that we may expect a neurologist to get a scan, mm-hmm. that would be if there are the sinister symptoms, such as having the fever, having one-sided weakness, numbness, some confusion, memory impairment, so sort of neurological symptoms that tells us that something else is going in the brain that tells us there is this underlying serious condition. In those situations, we would plan for a scan. So if we put it in percentage, I would say it's really less than 5% of patients that actually would really require a scan following the visit to a neurologist. All right. So not quite as dramatic as all those TV shows and movies make it seem. Definitely not. All right. Now, all right. So unfortunately, there are people who are going to fall into that 5%. And Mm -hmm. it is a more sinister condition that you were dealing with. What are some of the possibilities? Yeah, so when patients have the symptoms that we discussed earlier, the list of serious conditions is not exhaustive. But there are conditions such as bleeding in the brain due to a ruptured blood vessel, clots in the blood vessel of the brain, 
blood vessel inflammation, blood brain infection, and because under my specialty, brain tumors as well. These are all conditions that we would consider serious and would warrant investigations and sometimes even direct admission to the wards to get all the investigations and treatment started immediately for patients. Okay, now you have mentioned that one of the serious conditions that patients come to you presenting with headaches is brain tumor. That is, of course, serious and, and a very scary word. How is that diagnosed and and what treatment options are there available right now? Yeah, so for brain tumors, patients typically have headaches with more sinister features, such as headaches that wakes the patients up from sleep, headaches that are associated with um, the weakness, numbness, problems walking, headaches that are new, that are in patients who are older than 50 years old or with a history of cancer. In those situations, we would be really concerned about underlying brain tumour and we would definitely need to send the patients for scans. So just very broadly, brain tumours can be sort of classified as two types of brain tumours, what we call primary brain tumours, which means the tumours has arised from the brain itself, or secondary brain tumours, which means the tumours have spread from elsewhere over the body to the brain. After we do a brain imaging and we find a tumour, we may not be able to tell whether it's a primary or secondary brain tumours. In those settings, we may actually need to scan the whole body to see if there's other sources of tumours that have spread to the brain. Assuming that's not found, the next step is actually to get a tissue of the mass or the tumour, and that's where we would send the patients to a neurosurgeon to plan for a surgery to get a bite out, and that's how we would diagnose the brain tumour and to know the exact type of brain tumours. Treatment, it's really depending on the tissue type. So there are tumours that are considered more benign and they may not need any treatment after surgery. But there are also tumours that are considered a lot more malignant. And in those situations, after surgery, patients would be recommended for radiation therapy and or chemotherapy. Does it make a difference whether it is a brain tumour that started from the brain or came from other parts of the body? Mm-hmm. So the brain tumours that comes from other parts of the body is actually a lot more common than the brain tumours that are within the brain itself. For brain tumours that are coming from the rest of the body, the treatment options would need to include, we, we would need to treat the rest of the body as well. So in terms of the types of chemotherapy, it will be very different from those that we use just for the brain tumours that arise from the brain itself. So in other words, in terms of modality, surgery, radiation therapy and chemotherapy, I would say the main difference would be that there would be need to consider different types of chemotherapy, those that are used, for example, a breast tumour that goes to the brain. We would use chemotherapy for breast tumours, mm-hmm. whereas a brain tumour that is arising from the brain itself has very specific chemotherapy that is just for that type of brain tumours. Now, there's a lot that we have learned and, and medicine has progressed, but how <laughs> much progress have we made when it comes to the brain? In other yeah. words, you know, with chemotherapy, I've spoken to oncologists and, and they've talked about how much better your chances are with chemotherapy. What what your reactions to chemotherapy are today mm-hmm. than it, you know, and how much better they are today than it was, say, 30 years ago. Is that the yeah. same for the brain? 
I think generally the treatment for tumors have advanced since 10, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think for brain tumor, it's important to understand that the treatment is really what we consider multidisciplinary. So while we place emphasis on chemotherapy, the treatment actually encompasses surgery, radiation therapy and chemotherapy. Each modality actually has advanced in its own ways. For example, during surgery, nowadays we do use additional way of lighting up the tumor during the surgery itself to identify which areas are truly tumor and which areas are not so that we can maximize the amount of tumor that is taken out without hurting the rest of the normal brain. For radiation therapy, similarly, we are understanding a little, a lot more these days, understanding how we can target the radiation therapy to the brain tumor itself without affecting the surrounding brain itself, which has its implications because the more radiation to the rest of the brain, the higher risk of cognitive impairment because of the, the normal brain being affected. For chemotherapy, there are a lot of clinical trials that are going on for various types of brain tumors. And with better understanding of the tumor molecular markers, when I used uh, molecular markers, they are the genetic mutations within tumors, there are new therapies, what we call targeted therapies, where the therapies specifically target the mutations of the specific tumors, and that actually increases the chance of controlling the tumor and survival. This is what is a lot that has created a lot more interest is what uh, we consider immunotherapies, which are treatments that help to stimulate the immune system, our own body immune system, to attack the brain tumors or the tumors in the elsewhere of the body. So that has also advanced and that has improved the survival in a subset of uh, brain tumors and other types of tumors as well. So in very broad terms, I think every single modality that are essential for the control and treatment of brain tumors have advanced in their own ways. I think there's a lot more that we can do to improve the survival and the function of patients. But I think it has moved much further from 10 to 20 years ago. Well, that's good news for all of us if, <laughs> if that ever was an issue and we were unfortunate to be one of the 5%. Doctor, thank you so much for giving us the time. It certainly has been informative and really, actually, that was great because I almost was afraid to ask some of these questions and you made it so easy for us to follow your answers. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Clarissa. It has been a pleasure. We've been speaking with Dr. Lin Siu Ling, a consultant, neuro-oncologist and program director for Brain Tumor Program at the National Neuroscience Institute. I'm Clarissa Montero for Health Suites. You are on Money FM 89.3. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.